Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. morning. It is Wednesday, April 4th, 2018. This is the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us and a happy Easter. Happy Easter. I want to wish all of our listeners a happy Easter since we're still in the octave. So technically it is still Easter Sunday for us. We should be celebrating. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Today we're going to be visiting with Carl Keating. He is the founder of and a senior fellow at Catholic Answers, which we broadcast here at Red Sea in the afternoons. I'm sure you have listened to it, and I'm looking forward to this conversation with him. He's also an author, and he's got several books out. His re- most recent one, Book for Life, the bibliograph- bibliographic memoir of an accidental apologist. And um, two of his books, Catholicism and Fundamentalism and What Catholics Really Believe, have been national bestsellers, so I'm really looking forward to this. I want to welcome everyone listening to us on KEDC 88.5 FM, Hearn Bryan College Station, and of course our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM, Lorena Waco, and also our listeners in Palestine on KINF 107.9 FM. Welcome to everyone. Dennis, it is nice to have you here. I'm sad that it took uh, Thaddeus being ill, and we pray for his quick recovery for you to be here, but I'm glad you're here. Well, if you want to pray for anybody out there, anybody that's sick, you can pray for Deacon Mike's wife, as well as uh, Thaddeus and uh, Stephanie Lee, who is our director in Waco. They both have fevers and sore throats and, you know, are plugging through it, but uh, working from home. And so uh, we are uh, here in the studio together for the first time in a while. Yes, and I'm looking forward to the show. Uh, one of the things, uh, since we are in Texas, the weather keeps changing. I think that probably has part of something to do with everybody getting sick right now. But yesterday, it was like 83 degrees or something. <laughs> this yeah. morning, I walked out, and it was 48. Yeah, it's it, jacket weather this morning. It was big change overnight. Big change. How was your Easter, Dennis? It was great. We got to go visit with family up in the Fort Worth area and just had a, a really relaxing time, which is something I think we need more often. So uh, some beautiful beautiful Triduum um, celebrations, uh, Holy Thursday, Good Friday. Did not make it to the Easter Vigil this year, but we had a large crowd of about 15 at the uh, Easter Sunday services up near my parents. So it was very wonderful. Yes, and I hope everyone out there also had a wonderful Easter celebration, a beautiful Mass, good dinner with family and friends, and a reminder, Easter is intended to be a celebration. We are rejoicing in the resurrection, not just for what happened in the past, but for what it means for us in the future. A couple of things about the local area that are coming up that I wanted to talk about, and um, 
The ladies of Regnum Christi BCS invite you to a morning of reflection on April 20th from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. at the St. Joseph's Pack in Bryan. The topic, Reflecting the Love of Christ to Those Around Me, features inspiring talks by a layperson and a legionary priest, Father Eamon Shelley. Sacraments of Confession and Mass will be offered, hosted by Ladies of Regnum Christi BCS. The other things I wanted to talk about is St. Jo- Joseph has their 38th annual parish festival on May 6th, and uh, the reason we're mentioning this this early is that all parish festivals require assistance from the parishioners, so this is your wake-up call to volunteer to help with all the many things that are going on. Um, I know at St. Anthony's it takes a large number of people to put it up and uh, to put it on. And so then also it takes a lot of volunteers to take it back down. And there's, yeah, that's, it takes a whole lot. We're going to be needing that, that help coming up at our benefit dinner, but we'll talk about that more in a minute. But yeah, volunteer for your, your local parish festival. Can I t- mention one that's in Palestine? Why, certainly. They are having their upcoming, they're going to be having just here around mid, mid-April, I think it's on the 14th, if I'm not mistaken, their Sacred Heart 125th Jubilee Celebration. 125th. 125th Jubilee. So that is impressive. Congratulations to all the listeners at Sacred Heart Parish. Uh, it's a great milestone Show up, celebrate. It's going to be during the Easter season. What better time to celebrate your 125th Jubilee, Sacred Heart Parish in Palestine. And congratulations to you guys. That is a milestone. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Also coming up, and I can't miss this one, uh, St. Anthony's is also planning for their annual bazaar. It is their 54th, not quite 125 yet, but we're getting there. And uh, as I mentioned, May 20th, which is Pentecost Sunday. And um, again, same thing holds for our bazaar at St. Anthony's. We need volunteers for all kinds of things. Uh, So um, plan for it now to be there. uh, Help with setting it up. Help with running one of the booths. Help with uh, all kinds of things that are required and um, Check the bulletin to see where the most help is needed and volunteer. Um, in a minute, we're going to talk a little bit about RCIA because it's Easter and we're going through mystagogy. But one of the things we always talk about is where do I find my place in my faith community? Mm-hmm. And one of those places is helping out with these things. Yep. Yeah. Volunteer for your church. Volunteer for all the organizations within it. And as a matter of fact, coming up in the beginning of May, we're going to have our our Catholic Community Showcase here in the Brazos Valley. Coming up in Waco, we'll do one of those in the future, but uh, we're going to be doing our Catholic Community Showcase. So if you would like to spotlight one of the areas that you volunteer for your parish or the community and the Catholic community, give us a call here at Red Sea Catholic Radio. Go to our website, redsearadio.org, and go to the contact page. And let us know, because we would love to highlight you and interview you about what you do and makes what makes our beautiful Brazos Valley so wonderfully Catholic. And we have the benefit dinner for KYAR coming up. We do. It's coming right around the corner. And, and you mentioned the 54th Bazaar here at St. Anthony's, and I, I, today is my parents' 54th wedding anniversary. So I, I remember that already, but you just kind of 
spurred a memory. And so mom and dad, Dennis and Hattie Maka in Burleson, Texas, I love you. Happy 54th anniversary, if they're listening. Happy anniversary. Yeah, indeed. So wonderful. And you mentioned the uh, KYAR benefit dinner. Wow, folks, we are at about 80% full. And the the hall does not hold that many people. So we're going to max out at 250, 256. We are almost there. So basically three tables left. And uh, if you haven't gotten a table or tickets, now is the time, folks. So um, there might be a possibility we could squeeze in another 16. But, man, that would be pushing the fire code. So (laughs) that's a nice problem. It is a nice problem to have. So, folks, we have a benefit dinner and that is a uh, t- almost two weeks away, little just over two weeks away in Waco at Sacred Heart Catholic Church, just in the south part of Waco, and uh, it's going to be on April nineteenth at six thirty p.m. is when the doors open, and we have a VIP session. If you have a, a table level that's a, a thousand or higher, we have a, an opportunity for you to come in and meet Patrick Madrid, who's going to be our benefit speaker this year. It's going to be a great presentation, and. This is an opportunity. We listen to these people on the radio. Right. And it's always wonderful when you get to actually meet them in person. Although a lot of times we form images of the people we listen to on the radio and then we meet them in person and the voice doesn't always go with. <laughs> well, if you if you don't want to have that shock of what Patrick Madrid looks like, go to our webpage at redsearadio.org and click on his face. He's the guy with the big mustache and... Uh, you know, it's it's uh, his trademark mustache that he's had for years and years and years. And so uh, he has uh, mentioned on his show recently that um, he has a new grandson. I think it's 23rd or 24th grandchild. And uh, someone so graciously photoshopped his mustache onto the beautiful newborn. And <laughs> so I haven't seen that picture yet, but I want to. But yeah, Patrick's great. He's going to give an incredible presentation on a course in Eucharistic miracles. And the whole theme of the evening is Eucharist is Thanksgiving. And we've got some great news to share with everyone there in the Waco area. And this is one of our only times that we come to you to raise money. In the in the Brazos Valley, we have a benefit dinner and we have one in the Waco area each year. So we don't do on-air radiothons. We do air the relevant radio uh, radiothon that they have quarterly um, as part of our obligations, but that also comes back and, you know, half of that money raised locally comes to us. But this is our big benefit dinner, folks. So if you want to help Catholic Radio thrive and survive in the Central Texas area, this is the event you need to come to, is is our benefit dinner. We only have it once a year. And I want to remind everybody that if you've spent any time on the internet or listening to the news on television or the radio from secular sources. It is a breath of fresh air to listen to Catholic radio and listen to Catholic speakers. It is. Uh, You don't get the vitriol. You don't get the animosity, the embedded rage that I hear in everything that's coming out nowadays. Yeah, what's nice about Catholic Radio is that even the most heated, normally heated topics, pro-life versus pro-abortion, uh, you know, all the LGBT, all the, the race, he was talking about racism this morning, which <laughs> that is a huge heated topic. And they were having very nice debates and, and discussions. 
And he invited people to call in that disagreed with him because he would love to talk to them and share opinions. And you don't get any other forum, forum like that that I know of on a regular basis other than Catholic Radio. Uh, it just doesn't happen on a regular basis anymore. And it's really nice to have. And we've got a lot of non-Catholic listeners that are, are being impacted greatly um, by our programming. And so we thanks we give thanks to God and we give thanks to you that support us. And uh, we come to you and ask if you would like to come see Patrick Madrid. The tickets are 25 or you can buy a table or, or sponsor a table at a higher level to help with the radio um, even more. So we'd love for you to, to pack the house, but you've got to do it soon. The way that you do it is go to redsearadio.org. You can go forward slash donate, or you can click on the banner at the top of the page that has Patrick Madrid's picture, and you can go from there. You can buy your tickets and reserve them right then and there. So if you're in the Central Texas area and you listen to Red Sea on KYAR 98.3 and you feel called to support your radio station, get a ticket, come see Patrick Madrid, have some fine food, meet some very nice people, get to know some of the people that support the radio station. And um, if you're here in the Brazos Valley and you don't mind a short trip up to Waco. It's fast. It really is. Yes, it goes by in no time. And uh, you're, of course, welcome to come and support KYAR the same way that you do our local station here in the Brazos Valley. Yeah, so we would love to see you there. Our our benefit dinner is a blast. We have a lot of fun. It's very loose. I just made a beer and wine run yesterday, so all the adult beverages are, are going to be served up beforehand and throughout it's going to be a fun evening. It's just really relaxed and a great time to get to know Patrick Madrid and talk to him before you know, and after he sticks around. So looking forward to it. Yes, and everyone's invited. As we move on, one of the topics that I wanted to talk about again, since we are still in the season of Easter, for those of you all not familiar with the RCIA program, It doesn't end with the reception of the sacraments at the Easter Vigil. There's actually a period following Easter or through the Easter season called mystagogy. And it is the now what portion of RCIA. Um, But I think it's worthwhile talking about for all of us as Catholics who just have experienced the glorious Mass at Easter Sunday or the Easter Vigil. And sometimes we need to be reminded, what does this mean in our life? And there's a couple of things that we focus on in the period of mystagogy. Things like, what kind of prayer life do I have? What kind of prayer life do I need to have? And there's so many ways that we can pray, but we're challenged to pray without ceasing. And the question's always, what does that look like? What does that look like in our individual lives? And so all of us need a mystagogy during Easter, a reminder of how can I use this gift that I've been given by God, this great resurrection, this promise of eternal life, how can I use this to motivate me to become a better Catholic, to pray more, to be a better person? And this is one of the other parts of mystagogy, moral conscience. 
how do we go about forming a moral conscience? We're told that our conscience is the ultimate arbiter in our life. It is decides the things that we do. Well, if my conscience is informed, how do I trust the choices that I make? So one of the aspects of mystagogy is thinking about how do I form that conscience? Where do I go for advice? Where do I learn the proper way to utilize my conscience? Red Sea Catholic Radio. Ah. <laughs> it's, it's a tool. It, is, sure. it certainly is a tool. And this, uh, again, uh, the benefits of having a local Catholic radio station because you do get true voices that reflect what the church teaches. But also, we have a wonderful catechism, which, you know, we are rarely as familiar with as we should be. And it's always helpful that we re-familiarize ourselves with where to find things in the catechism that can help us to form our conscience, to how do we reach the decisions. Our culture constantly informs us that all that is required is us asking, how do I feel? And that is always the last thing we should be asking. It should always be what is true first. And so in forming a moral conscience, it is important that we recognize that we seek the truth first. Our feelings are secondary. And one of the other things that we talk about in the mystagogy is, of course, how do I serve our parish? We were talking about parish festivals and bazaars and benefit dinners and things like this. Bible studies, small groups, you know, volunteer opportunities. Yes. How do we apply our Christian faith? How do we maintain a connection to the community that supports us in our faith life? And so it is vitally important that we seek to hang out with people and groups that are going to make us better. And that's not to mean that we disassociate ourselves from the society we live in, but it's vitally important that we maintain an anchor to our faith in the associations that we form, in the groups we join, in the study sessions that we lead or participate in, to make sure that we serve one another, that we seek to live out our faith to the best of our ability in community, so that we may live it out in the world around us. Amen. We're going to go to a short break, and then on the other side, we'll be talking to Carl Keating. So I'll see you all on the other side. And we're back. You're listening to the Red Sea Roundup. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. And as promised, we are talking to Carl Keating, the founder and a senior fellow at Catholic Answers. Good morning, Mr. Keating. Good morning, Deacon Mike. It's great to be with you on Red Sea Roundup. 
it is my pleasure to have you on. I've listened to you a lot, and uh, I really enjoyed your book. Uh, in a minute, we'll be talking about it. It's called Booked for Life. Uh, but uh, before we get into that, would you tell our listeners who are not as familiar with you a little bit about your background and uh, your family? Uh, well, uh, I'm a cradle Catholic, Chicago originally, although I don't broadcast that too, too much. <laughs> I was brought up in Southern California, live in San Diego. Um, probably am best known for having founded Catholic Answers, uh, which I, which became my full-time employment about 30 years ago. I'm retired from it now. Uh, and I'm presently occupied in writing uh, several books, uh, some of which will appear later this year. Uh, my wife, Teriko, is from Japan. We have a son who lives there with his family, so we don't get to see him quite as often as we might like. Uh, she gets to go back there tomorrow, in fact, to spend a few weeks to visit. Uh, I don't have a chance to go until later in the year. Uh, we've got a couple of granddaughters, and uh, so look always look forward to getting together with them. And uh, so since my wife will be gone for a while, I'm going to have some opportunity to really focus I'm getting uh, my next few books in in shape. One of the things that, of course, everybody knows uh, that knows you is your association with Catholic Answers. How did Catholic Answers come about? A bit by accident, actually. Uh, one day, around 1979, I'd say, um, my wife and I came out of church on Sunday and saw that the cars in the parking lot had flyers under the windshield wipers. It turned out those flyers were anti-Catholic tracts against the priesthood and against the Eucharist that were written and distributed by a fundamentalist Protestant church just a mile down the road. Seeing that nobody was inclined to do much about this, I decided to work up a response. So I wrote my own flyer, printed off some copies, and a couple of weeks later passed out my flyer on the windshields of the cars in that church's parking lot. And so that was it. It was a one-time event. I didn't want to put my name on the flyer, so I invented the name of an organization, Catholic Answers, because here it was, a Catholic giving answers. And I put a P.O. box on it instead of my home address. And I thought that would be it. But I got a wonderful response to it. And for the next number of years, uh, at this point I was practicing law, but for the next number of years on the side, I'd be engaged more and more in apologetics until the point where it really ended up becoming not an avocation, but a vocation. And I closed my law practice at the end of 1987 and, and went into apologetics full time. Which goes to explaining the subtitle of your book, A Bibliographic Memoir of an Accidental Apologist. That's the accidental part. Yes, I backed into it. There was no particular game plan or business plan or really even foresight, I thought it would be a one-time response. Uh, and I, I was a bit taken aback by the replies I got, some of which actually from Catholics. I don't know how they found my flyer. But that prompted me to get more involved in apologetics and to learn apologetics, which I had to do on my own because there's really no way otherwise in those years to, to learn the, the field or the art. And uh, it just went from there. So uh, a lot of it was just by happenstance. Uh, and, you know, 
seems to have turned out fairly well. Uh, the title of your uh, book is Booked for Life. And who did you have in mind when you wrote this book? Who did you want to reach as the audience? Now, it's engaging, and I think anybody can read it, but I'm guessing that there was something in your mind that you know this would be beneficial for. Well, Book for Life is a memoir, but it's an unusual kind of memoir. It's not an autobiography in the sense of telling all the details of my life. I, I didn't want to write that kind of book because I didn't think there'd be any interest in it. I'm not interested in it. But I thought, I thought a memoir might be appropriate if it were arranged in a certain way, which is Book for Life is about the books that influenced my development as a Catholic apologist. And so in this, I look at 25 different books, five of them chiefly, and then another 20 auxiliary books. And I explain how they were influential in my development as a Catholic and uh, why I think that others ought to become familiar with them. Uh, I mentioned that anybody going into apologetics today uh, and looking back at the books that might have been helpful in his formation will have a different set of books probably than I would have. Uh, there may be some overlap, but there would be other titles too. But I'm looking at the ones that actually did influence me. And so as I cast my gaze along my bookshelves at home, I took down the books that I thought had been most influential. And in Book for Life, I write about them. Uh, and I write about my own experience in using them and experiences that I had as an apologist during my career. So I think my audience chiefly would be other Catholics, uh, those who would just like to know their faith somewhat better and might get on some inspiration about what books to turn to so they can do that. And then those Catholics, probably a lesser number, but still not few, who want to actually be able to explain and defend the faith to others. And then, of course, I, th I think part of the audience might also be some non-Catholics who might be intrigued to find out what it was that set a particular Catholic on this rather peculiar road of ending up as an apologist. Now, the authors of the books that you focus on in Booked for Life skew British. What? Uh, yes, at least the five main ones do. In fact, I call them uh, all English, but uh, only four of them legitimately so, and one sort of honorifically so. Uh, it turns out that uh, maybe by accident, maybe not, the, the, the books that I thought were most influential to me happened to be written by British Catholic writers. And as I explained in the introduction, I think part of the attraction to me is simply that from an early age, I enjoyed the British style of writing, the British take on English. And I begin the book actually with an anecdote from my childhood about uh, the influence over me that uh, a young person's book had. And that happened to be written by a British author. And uh, ever since, I've been uh, taking a lot of delight in the British style of writing, especially as it relates to the faith. So uh, the five main books that I look at in Book for Life just happen to be from writers of that ilk. You seem to really uh, feel... Um 
a familiarity with Frank Sheed's writing and uh, seemed to, uh, he seems to be very much an influence in your apologetic style. Why is that? Uh, I'd say that you're onto something there because two and a half books of the books I mentioned in Books for Life are by Frank Sheed. Uh, two of them actually are among the top five, and, and one is in the auxiliary 20, shall I say. Uh, Sheed, I never met, unfortunately. I got into apologetics uh, just a few years too late to ever have had a chance to think, to arrange to meet him. I wish I had. Uh, he had, was actually Australian by birth and then moved to England. And so he's the one that I call the honorary Englishman. And uh, later on, he and his wife, Maisie Ward, came to the U.S. for their last years. And curiously enough, these two whose active lives chiefly were spent in London are buried in Jersey City, New Jersey. Uh, but Sheed, I think, was the top Catholic apologist in the English-speaking world in the last century. He wrote a lot of books. I think I have all of them, about 40 books or so. And I think that he did more than anyone else to set out the logic of the faith, the discussion of the faith, so that really anybody could grasp it. Anyone could see why the charges against the church did not have good foundations. And anyone could read these and get to know the faith for himself very well. I like Sheed's style. It's always very clear and precise. Uh, he was largely self-taught in the faith. Uh, he, as I later had to do, um, more or less learned apologetics on his own, but then he got involved in early years, in the 20s and 30s, with the uh, Catholic Evidence Guild in London, and he and his wife were chief people there. So Sheed has always been someone that I've been fascinated with. So as I say, two of the five books that are the main focus in my book are ones that he wrote or co-wrote. I also noticed that you listed two books by Donald Atwater, A Catholic Dictionary and A Dictionary of the Popes. Now, most of us don't sit down and read dictionaries. No, we don't, do we? Uh, but, but these, nevertheless, are two books that influenced me greatly. And in a way, these two books should not have been called dictionaries. They should have been called encyclopedias. Because a dictionary, of course, is a definition of words. And although Atwater writes the Catholic De Dictionary, which is about defining Catholic terms, it reads more like a little an encyclopedia with small articles. And ditto for the one about popes. He, he, he looks at the popes of the church and gives little praises or, or summaries of their lives. Um, and I, I found those two books to be extremely useful because in the course of my work, I'd be asked about popes and sometimes about obscure ones and things they allegedly did or failed to do or what have you. And so Atwater's book on the popes was a good way to get a quick overview in one volume of the whole history of the papacy. Similarly, his dictionary uh, on the Catholic faith is one that allows you to get a grasp of all kinds of Catholic things and subjects and uh, beliefs, practices, history, so forth, in a very quick way, in short compass, uh, and you begin to get a broad view of things. And for my purposes, that came in very handy. I mentioned 
in the introduction to my book, that when I was young, when I was in high school, I was engaged in the math club, and our club had competitions with other schools throughout Southern California, sometimes as many as 100 schools at a time, sending teams to math tournaments. And I explained that I was uh, got as a, as a prize for, for one of these tournaments a book uh, called the Mathematics uh, Dictionary. And that, that, doc, that book was influential to me back in those years because it had all these formulas and techniques and so on to understand abstruse elements of math, which I found very useful in later competitions. Well, it's much the same kind of thing here with the Atwater books. Uh, they contain a, hundreds of, of points that are considered, but I found that by going through them, I developed the basis for knowledge in a sort of broad area. Then I could go back and maybe you know, his, his book on the popes inspired me to find out something about Pius III, uh, which might be something that I would need to look up and, and get a background on for some apologetical purpose. So anyway, I include in Book for Life a number of books like those that were very good for sort of background information on the faith and, uh, and that ultimately uh, gave me information that proved valuable in discussions or even in public debates that I would later have. In your chapter on a dictionary of the popes, um, I noticed a quote from Pope Leo the Thirteenth, and it says the historian of the church has a duty not to dissimulate any of the trials that the church has had to suffer from the faults of her children, and even at times from those of her own ministers. That really struck me. How valuable do you think it is for an apologist not to just brush aside the negative aspects of the church when you're talking to people? Well, this is absolutely key. I think it's a disaster, usually, to try to hide things. I mean, history is history. Things happen. And history is the tale of the doings of human beings. And we're all sinners, and, and even at the highest levels of the church. And we all, more than that, we've all, we all make uh, imprudent decisions, uh, or we, we, we fail to know things that we ought to know, what have you. And so throughout Catholic history, We've had saints and glorious things and so forth. We've also had problems. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the uh, popes I like to bring up is St. Celestine V, who reigned for about seven months in 1294. He was the last pope prior to Benedict XVI to resign from the papacy. As a matter of fact, a couple years before Benedict resigned, he visited St. Celestine V's tomb and prayed there quite a while. People noted it at the time, but they didn't figure out what was going on. Well, anyway, Celestine got to be the Pope in a rather strange way. His predecessor had been dead a couple of years. The cardinals, who were split between Frenchmen and Italians, couldn't come to a two-thirds vote to elect anybody because the Frenchmen wanted a French Pope and the Italians wanted an Italian Pope, and they couldn't agree. This was becoming a bit scandalous because the papacy was empty for two years. So there's this monk up in the mountains of... Uh, Italy, an elderly man named Peter Morone, and he wrote a, a rather strongly worded letter to the cardinals. He said, this is a scandal. You've got to elect a pope. And so they wrote back to him and they said, okay, we elect you. And so Peter comes to Rome. He's a very elderly man, never had authority over anybody or anything before. He becomes pope. And as an administrator, he's a disaster. 
he was it was said that he was unable to refuse to say no to requests from people who were asking for opposite things. So things were were just a mess during the months of his papacy, and he eventually was persuaded to resign. So here you have a very holy man, a canonized saint, who was at the top of the church and unfortunately didn't do a very good job. So when we look at something like that, we can say, yeah, you know, we've got cardinals or priests or bishops, occasionally even popes, who maybe not are not very good on the job. We certainly have laymen who are not very good on the job. So let's but let's not hide any of this because uh, if someone brings up a complaint against some character in the church, some historical issue, uh, and we try to paper over it. The complainer sees past that and sees what we're doing. It doesn't do him or us or the church any service to pretend things are other than as, as they were. I'd like to, to always keep in mind a sentence that appeared in Pope Leo the 13th, 1891 encyclical, Rerum Novarum, often titled in English as On Human Labor. It was the first of the social encyclicals. And the quotation, as, I, as it settled in my mind, it's not exactly as he wrote it, but it's the way it settled in my mind is this. There is nothing so solitary as to view the world as it really is. And I think that applies to viewing the church as it's really been and ourselves as we really have been. So I always say to budding apologists, always be completely honest about the faith. Uh, you know, the, the church consists of people who are, have a fallen nature. And so there will be problems, but the church itself is indefectible. Uh, and the very fact that we have problems, we have problematic people in the church, and yet the church persists and, and succeeds, is a, is a kind of backwards acknowledgement that the Holy Spirit is in charge of things and not just plain human beings. I think this is something that was uh, known in the old uh, in the early church and sort of due to the Protestant Reformation got lost somewhere along the way because uh, St. Ambrose, his whole thing about the Mysterium Lunae, the church being like the moon, it's just a rock and the light it gets is from God, was a reminder that we're, the church is made up of fallible people and the holiness doesn't come from them, it comes from God. And yet, you know, we sort of lost sight of that for a while, but I'm glad to see that it's, you know, brought back in apologetics. Uh, I know Bishop Barron mentions this quite often, and I'm glad that, you know, you brought this out in the book. Well, I think it's something we have to keep in mind, because sometimes people come, approach the Catholic Church in two ways. Those who are non-Catholic often think that there is no authentically divine aspect to the Church, that it's a human institution it's been successful because the popes and the cardinals and so on have been good political manipulators over the centuries. But otherwise, it's just a regular human institution the way a giant corporation might be. Well, that's obviously a substantial error because our Lord was quite clear in Matthew 16 that he was setting up the church uh, and that it was going to be having his own powers, which were not purely human powers, right? On the other hand, we do have some Catholics who approach the church in what some people might have called an angelistic attitude, uh, that that like the good angels, there's no fault there, and that uh, every, everything needs to be uh, just accepted as it as it rolls off the assembly line, so to speak. And yet, you know, all of us, 
we can look to our own parishes. We see no matter how successful parishes are, they all have problems because everybody in the parish will have some kind of problem, whether it's the pastor or the deacons or the sisters or certainly the folks in the pews. We've all got limitations. We all struggle under the, the penalties of original sin. And so no matter how great our parishes may be, you know, there are limitations there. And it, it would not be wise at the parish level to enter into parish life thinking that everything is roses all the time, because it's not. But if you have that attitude, at some point you'll be disappointed. And there's a possibility you could be so disappointed that you simply drop out of the parish completely. Well, the same thing is true about the church in general. If people come into it thinking, you know, I've got it made now, everything's going to be easy, it's, it's a straight shot, and so forth. No, life is still going to be tough even once you become a Catholic. But if you have that wrong attitude, you'll find yourself bouncing out of the church as, as quickly as you bounced in. I gained an appreciation for Thomas Merton when I first read Merton and Woe, an exchange of letters between Merton and Evelyn Woe. And I noticed that in the chapter Difficulties, um, which was a, a book uh, on the collection of letters between Ronald Knox, a Catholic at the time, and uh, at the time, a Protestant, Arnold Lunn. And how did this help you as an apologist, seeing those letters exchange right. between them? Uh, difficulties is, of all the books that I mentioned in Book for Life, is my favorite Catholic book, or my favorite non-inspired Catholic book, put it that way, uh, of all the books I've ever read. It's an exchange of letters between then-Father Ronald Knox, who was a convert to the Catholic faith and might be considered the 20th century's equivalent in England of John Henry Newman, who was the great 19th century convert. So Ronald Knox, uh, translator of the Bible from the Latin Vulgate into English, all on his own, the only man to have done so in modern times, uh, a brilliant scholar at Oxford, uh, and so on. Arnold Lunn, at this time, a Christian but not yet a Catholic. Uh, he ended up as a Catholic apologist for the later years of his life, being brought into the church by Knox. He's well known to many people who were recently watching the Winter Olympics because uh, Lunn was the one who invented the slalom ski race. He's very, he very well known among skiers throughout the world. So here they had an exchange of letters in the 1930s, and this influenced me in a couple ways, uh, similar to some, uh, to some other books that consist of exchange of letters. What I especially liked about the book Difficulties was the high level of its gentlemanly courtesy, the wit, the knowledge on the part of both men, the way they would go at one another, not with hammer and tongs, but with, but with great courtesy, and working through difficulties that Lund in particular had, but you know Knox himself would say that there were there were some issues on which he'd not yet worked up uh, an argument that he was completely satisfied with, even though he was quite sure uh, that the conclusion was correct. He wasn't necessarily sure that he had worked up the best way to explain something. And so this book, Difficulties, which unfortunately is out of print, and I sure wish it would come back into print. Uh, turned out to be the book that most influenced me, or at least that I would put at the top of my books, if I had all these 25 in front of me able to pass them out to, to people, this would probably be the first one I would, I would 
want to give to people because it influenced me so much. And uh, as I say, of the five British writers that uh, I've been intrigued with, uh, this one, Difficulties, uh, I think showcases the British style of Catholic apologetics better than anything else. One of the things you just mentioned is the so a certain sense of collegiality between the writers, even though they were on opposite sides of the position. And how do we regain that? Well, you know, one of the things, if another of the five books is called Is, is Christianity True? And this is one where the Catholic Arnold Lund is exchanging letters with C.E.M. Jode, who was at the time an agnostic philosopher in England, Later on, he became a, a Christian, though not a Catholic. And so these are two men even further apart than Lund, the earlier Lund and Knox had been. But again, what you find in that book is great courtesy toward the opponent. And I think Catholics need to rediscover that in many cases, especially online. I'm online a lot, Facebook and other places in Catholic discussions. And I've seen that it's maybe the medium itself. I mean, I don't know, but there's a, a, a considerable level of discourtesy to opponents. So even when Catholics are right, uh, and, but when they're arguing with other Catholics or with non-Catholics, they're often wrong in the way they argue. Uh, there's never any reason to be snide or snarky or rude to other people. Uh, I, I learned this early on publicly when, in my first public debate. Uh, I was very much outnumbered in that. Uh, my fundamentalist opponent insisted that the debate be held in his own church. So the audience was almost all his congregants, and they were very much biased against the Catholic Church. So I had to really watch my P's and Q's that night. And, and he didn't. He really came out forcefully and rudely against the Catholic Church, which he had once been a priest in. So it was really a, 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 an odd situation. Uh, when the whole thing was over, I had people come up to me and say, you know, I don't think I'll ever be a Catholic, but after tonight, I'm no longer an, an anti-Catholic because I appreciate the way that you were calm in defending your church's teaching. And that says something positive about not just you, but about your church. And I learned something from that night that you, we, we don't have to give as as we get, we can always explain the faith in a courteous, low-key, in a way with a little wit, too. But we can, we can explain in those ways, and we make far better inroads than if we try to, to reply to people uh, brusquely, or if we're overarching in our words, or if we're belittling our, our opponents, no matter how wrong they might be, no matter how obviously wrong they might be, uh, we don't have to be insulting to them. What we need to do is simply be sharing the faith and saying, this is what it is, this is why I believe it, and let it go at that. I couldn't agree more. One of the things that I find most distressing is when I read comments on a Catholic website, and they become negative, insulting, rude, and I sometimes wonder if non-Catholics read this, what impression are they forming? Because you stopped listening to the argument. You're judging the person as That's a Catholic right. by yeah, how they... Of, Go ahead. You're, you're right. Uh, yeah, Deacon Mike, I was about to mention one of the anecdotes I have in the book is 
I was at a meeting of Catholics in Western Connecticut once about oh, 25 years ago or so. And I came into the kitchen at the lodge where this was being held. And there was an argument going on. And in front of me was Professor Warren Carroll, a Catholic historian, now deceased, who was one of the co-founders of Christendom College. And facing him was a taller, younger man. And they were arguing about the proper way to do apologetics. And this other fellow styled himself an apologist, but he said, if you want to get Protestants to enter the church, you've got to be insulting to them. I mean, he was literally saying this. And Carroll, who was a very mild-mannered man, for maybe the first time in his life in public, was losing his temper. Uh, because he basically was saying to this guy, that's a crazy approach. You will have no success, and you will do the church no favor if you come across as a pain in the neck. You, you've got to emulate Christ in many ways. And uh, one of them is, is you know, to, to uh, speak seriously about the faith, but in a loving, charitable way. And so that little episode always stuck in my mind uh, because there are Catholics who are very zealous to promote the faith. I appreciate that. But some of them do it in such a ham-handed way that they don't realize that they're hurting their prospects, they're not helping them. Yes, and that's the thing. You can be right, but if everybody finds you abrasive, no one's going to listen anyway. That's right. Well, these are things that I mentioned, you know, in, in Book for Life. I, you know, we've, we've talked about a few of the books that of the 25 that are in there and, and a couple of the episodes that I've had in my apologetical career. Um, it is a book available, by the way, at, at, at Amazon, and uh, I'm getting some very nice um, comments about it, and I'm grateful for that. I have to say that I think it's probably the best written book that I've written. I'm really quite satisfied with it. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, it's, it's uh, a memoir, uh, a little unusual format of a memoir because it's based on books that influence me. But I think that the reader of this will, can go through, through Book for Life and come away not just with an idea of books that he'd like to read, but uh, a sense of the importance of learning the faith through books and letting those books, whichever ones you choose, uh, form you in a good way to be a more knowledgeable Catholic and a Catholic is more inclined to not shy away when there's a misunderstanding or dispute but uh, to participate in resolving the situation, you know, it, with the right attitude, with the right approach. Um, and these books that I mentioned, maybe my book itself, will, will help people do that. Well, and I think that, if nothing else, the book is an inspiration for others to build a library of books that helps them get to know their faith and respond to people that may not understand it as well as they should. Yeah, you know, it, it doesn't take much effort to learn enough answers to the faith to help other people. Uh, I once, before I got into any of this work, I remember I had a, a Seventh-day Adventist missionary come to the door, and he flipped through the Bible trying to disprove Catholic beliefs, and I knew he was wrong on every point he brought up. I didn't have a response at that point except to one point. Uh, but that taught me that once I res responded on that one point to him, I said, you know, I said to myself later, if I can learn how to answer on this one question, this one disputed issue, which happened to be about the papacy, if I can learn that one answer, I can learn 10. 
if I can learn 10 answers, I can learn 100. And honestly, if you get to about 100, you're going to be handling most of the questions that anybody ever will, will bring up to you. So it's not that hard to do. And you can do it almost uh, by osmosis by reading the right Catholic books, such as the ones that I include here in Booked for Life. You go through some of these books. For example, the, the very first one I mentioned is Catholic Evidence Training Outlines. This is the co-authored book, Frank Sheed and his wife, Maisie Ward. You go through that once, and you've probably already absorbed enough information to answer a couple dozen questions that you could not have answered before from coworkers or family members or fellow students at school or other folks in the parish, what have you. It doesn't take much to get to the point where you're able to be a positive influence on someone else who's confused or just has something wrong. And, and then when you can engage in that, you get a sense of confidence building up in yourself. You say, hey, I did that for this one person. I can learn something else that helps somebody else. And you can keep that up over a number of years, maybe. And, you know, you're not likely going to apologetics full time as I did. But you can learn enough to be a true apostolic Catholic, you know, to those who, whom you come in contact with. And I think that's a very great thing and that really anybody can do that. And I think especially in our culture today, it's important even for us as Catholics to have answers to our own questions because we hear those so many things around us that question what the church teaches. And sometimes we may doubt ourselves. And this is an excellent way of being able to defend our faith even to ourselves. That's right. These kinds of books help you reinforce your own faith, get rid of I wouldn't say even I wouldn't use the word doubt. I'd say difficulties. I'd make the distinction between the two. Uh, you know, uh, John Henry Newman said that he never doubted the faith. He had a lot of difficulties about it, but he resolved those difficulties through study and through prayer. Uh, but he knew that when there was a difficulty, he knew there was a solution. He didn't know what the solution might be at that moment, but he, he but he was confident in the church that there was a solution that would make sense to him and that resolved the issue, and it always did. So there's never any reason for Catholic to doubt any element of the faith, but we all have difficulties about understanding particular things, and certainly difficulties in how to explain the things we do understand to other people. And so the books that I talk about in Book for Life uh, are precisely the kinds of things that would help any Catholic first resolve his own difficulties, as you say, Dick and Mike, and then be able to help other people resolve their difficulties. Well, uh... Carl Keating, I want to thank you very much for being on the show. We're at the end of the program. Uh, I want to encourage all our listeners to check out Booked for Life and tune in next week for our roundup when our host will be Gene Wilhelm. And until then, when calculating the many ways you might share your time, talent, and treasure with the people of God, always round up. <laughs>